0: for this word that we just read as I was reading it this past week, thinking about our nation and the wicked nations of this uh, world, those who call good evil and evil good. Lord, uh, the reality is that pain and suffering and death are inescapable uh, parts of life, but there's a reason for that, Lord. How do we account for the troubles that are common throughout uh, history? Why do the nations rage? Why do the heathens, the pagans, rage against you? Lord, humanity, the story of humanity shows a, a restless world, a sinful world, that is always searching for answers that never provide relief. Lord, our world, our nation is full of people hundreds of millions of people, billions of people who are searching for answers that never provide relief. They search for answers on social media. They search for answers on their phones. They search for answers by listening to the foolish wisdom of this world. And Lord, those things never provide relief at all. Lord, the pursuits, of this word, the pursuits of those who rage against you are vain and they are empty. Those who purposefully rebel against you, against your word, against the standards, against your commands, against your created order, Lord, those who rebel against that, their pursuits are vain and they are empty and they bring the misery and chaos that we see in our world today. Lord, these people who reject you, they may dream and plan for a world of their own happiness that is created by them. Their attempts are futile, Lord, because of their ignorance of you. And Lord, you will judge their rebellion against you, and your wrath will be fierce. It will be hot. It will be devastation. Lord, why do the nations rage? Why do the kings of the earth, the rulers, set themselves and take counsel against you and against your anointed, against your Christ? Why do they take counsel together against your people, against Christians, against those who believe that the Bible is true, that the Bible is the word of God? Lord, as your word says, you sit in heaven and laugh at them. You laugh at them. You will hold them in derision. You will hold them in contempt and judgment. And Lord, you shall speak to them in your wrath. And you will distress them in your deep displeasure. Lord, the people that rage against you, you will judge their rebellion. But Lord, the great thing is that there is hope. The psalmist speaks of deliverance that is echoed throughout the entirety of Scripture. And Lord, the hope culminates in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is an answer that the world cannot provide because the world rages against Christ. But Lord, the world is raging against the very answer the very solution to their misery, the very solution to their grief, the very solution to their depression and their despondency. They are rebelling against the very one, the very Christ who provides hope for them. This is the answer. Christ is the answer. The world cannot provide it. That Lord, your gracious purpose to extend mercy through your son, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, as the psalmist speaks of. Christ is the remedy to a restless and rebellious world. And he is the remedy that brings the true joy and deliverance that the world desperately wants. Lord, when we we see people in our culture acting out in ways that go against your created order, Lord, they are crying out. They are divorced, crying out in the wilderness for help. Lord, we as Christians are to provide that help, to point them to Christ. Lord, we are not to comfort them with lies, but we are to confront them with your truth. We are not to assist them in their self-deception, in their self-worship, In their idolatry. Or rather, we ought to point them to the only one who is truly worthy of all of our worship, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as a church to do that here, the Living Church, as a church, corporately, and as individual members of the body of Christ, to share this hope in Christ in this world. The solution is not more legislation. Legislation is good in, in use as an instrument to restrain evil, but it cannot eradicate the sin that lies in the human heart. Legislation can't do that. Electing Republicans or Democrats uh, to state and, and uh, federal House positions, Senate, won't do it. Putting the right politicians in place won't do it. Lord, only a heart change, only gospel about can change the hearts of evil and wicked people. Only the gospel can do that. Lord, that is the hope that we as a church, we as the corporate body of Christ is supposed to provide. Why do the nations rage? Because they are looking for hope in all the world places. Lord, I love the way this psalmist lands this song. It says, kiss the son. In other words, worship the son, Jesus Christ. Bow down to him. Worship him. Kneel before him. Lest he be angry and you perish when his wrath is kindled but a little. Lord, the solution is to bow the knee to Christ. And the psalmist ends by saying, bless are all those put their trust in him. That is the solution to the chaos of this world. That is the solution to the chaos that's even in our own lives. If, 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 if anyone in here, in this assembly, who's watching online, who's going to listen to the podcast, if they have a life of chaos and drama and all this going on, Lord, in their life, may they put their trust in him. Stop looking to the world. The world provides no answers. The world provides no solution. The world only provides misery and chaos because the world hates God. The world rages against Him. Help us see that as a church. Help us as a people individually to see that. To put our trust in you and depend on you. And Lord, as we li- listen to your word this morning from Ephesians 1, we're talking about the prayer for spiritual enlightenment. Lord, help us to see your truths in this passage, that you may give us wisdom, that you may enlighten us spiritually, to be able to navigate this world in which we live. Lord, send your spirit to illuminate, to give us enlightenment, and to your truths, and fill me with your spirit to preach this text well to your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen, amen. 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 Let us turn to Ephesians. We're back in Ephesians after two weeks of folks uh, that on Easter. We're in the second part, the transition part of this chapter, where Paul goes from uh, emphasizing the spiritual blessings the reason for his prayer for them and it is based on the fact that they are uh, blessed by the Lord, the spiritual vessels in the heavenly uh, places in Christ. So we're looking at verses 15 to 18 as well. I want to read down to the 22nd verse of this uh, chapter. Some translations start off with therefore, and some say for this reason. So, Paul says here, read from the New King James this morning. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. We'll look at that next week. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. Amen. I can't wait to get to the rest of these verses in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so, we're looking at verses 15 through 18 this morning. And just uh, just as an opening thought, just something to uh, you know, think about here. You think about a baby, when a baby is born. You know, some of us have seen as parents. uh your child, when your child was born, and they are born physically with that. Most babies are born with their eyes closed unless they're like nine pounds and they come out looking like they're three months old. <laughs> you know, eyes like wide open. You know, but most babies are born with their eyes closed and and, and they can't see and they're not aware of the world around them. But physically speaking, when the baby is born, the eyes are open to a a whole new world. They were in the mother's uh, uterus inside of the amniotic sac of fluid for up to 40 weeks, you know, uh, generally speaking some, you know, a couple weeks early and so forth and so on, but but they're residing in their mother's womb in the uterus inside of a uh, amniotic sac, and then before you know it, they're going through the canal, and they come out, and they're born into a whole different dimension than anything that they have previously known that's why babies come out crying because they're in a new world they've never been in this surrounding before so the sensation of the air on their skin and everything they don't know what to do with that so that's why they come out crying because they're being waking up out of their sleep so to speak their slumber of being in the womb and they're entering into a brave new world they're limited by what they can see at birth, but, but as a baby develops, their eyes uh, start to focus more and more on, on things, and they begin to see not just things that are close up, but they begin to see things far away. They begin to literally see the world differently, and this is a growing process. They, they become one-year-old and two-years-old, and then they say, you know— they're starting kindergarten, they're around other kids in the school setting, and they begin to see the world differently. And then they matriculate through school, you know, they go through the different grades, and and, and their eyes are just open to more and more, and they see how sinful the world is, and then eventually they begin to see how sinful they are if they're honest with themselves. They grow, they learn, their eyes are opening, and they're learning more and more. It It is a growing process, and this type of process can be described as an enlightenment. You're being enlightened. Things are are opening up to you. You're beginning to see life differently and more clearly as you get older. And as you get older and older as an adult, you begin to see life differently, especially when you have to take on your own responsibilities, when you don't have your parents or your, your mama or your papa providing for you and giving you money and, and taking care of you. Now you're, you're you're getting out on your own where you have to actually get a something called a job and you actually have to pay your own bills and you actually have to clean your own house up. You know, life just begins to, to, to be different and some people when they get to that age, they can't handle that. They can't handle uh, adulthood. Uh, so they respond in ways that are negative. They respond in ways that can bring trouble to themselves or to others around them. But you have others who Handle adulthood well, and they grow older and older. They begin to become more enlightened to the world around them. That is how the process of spiritual growth works too. When you're when you're in Christ, you're a babe in Christ. You don't you don't know everything just yet. You're just learning about God, what you've been taught in church, and then when God saves you and and the scales come off of your eyes. But Just being alive would be abnormal. All of us are not just alive, we are living. There's a big difference. Many Christians seem to be content with just being alive, but not actually living. Living the Christian life, living a gospel-centered life. In the natural life, we're not alive just for the sake of being alive. God created us with, with purpose, and that purpose is to glorify him and to Uh, enjoy Him forever. That's why God made us. He didn't make us just to exist. He made us to live, to to have a living, to, to work, to steward our resources, to steward what He has given us. That's why God made us. He didn't make us to use and abuse and consume. He made us to produce and contribute and to serve same way it is in the Christian life, but you won't know that if you have not been enlightened to the truth of God. And as believers, our eyes have been opened to a new spiritual dimension. When God saves us, we go from darkness to light, we go from being rebels against God to servants of God. We go from being slaves to sin to being slaves to Christ. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, any man who is in Christ is a new creation. We are literally spiritually made new, made over. God gives us new spiritual eyes. We begin to see the world with new lens, with the lens of Christ and the lens of Scripture and not the lens of the world. Everything becomes new. He says, any man who is Christ is a new creature. Old things have passed away, old thoughts, old sins. All proclivities, all bad habits, they began to pass away. And he says, behold! Behold as if you're a wonder of wonders. All things have become what? New. There new spiritual eyes that God gives us. We begin to see the world new. We begin to see ourselves different. This is how enlightenment works. And in this new spiritual dimension. We are called to grow in our depth of the knowledge of God. We're called to know God more. Not to know ourselves more, but to know God more. And so God gives us all the opportunity when he saves us to know him better. He gives us all that opportunity. We want to be able to see things that are fall not just the things that are close. We want to see the big picture of God's story of redemption. We don't want our story, our vision rather, to be clouded by indifference or by apathy. No. For our persistence, in sin, or persistence in sin, that clouds our spiritual vision. need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to show us more of God. So in this passage here this morning, we see that Paul gives heartfelt thanksgiving and an effective prayer, an effectual prayer. And this comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The work of the Spirit produces in us heartfelt thanksgiving, and effective prayer. So, I'm going to break this passage up into three parts. We're going to first look at verses 15 and 16. It says here, and my principle for this one is, is faith in God produces love for the saints. For this reason, or therefore, he says, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two things to note here. What did he hear of? First, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what? Their love toward the saints. Those two things are connected. So he says, for this reason, or therefore, he's referring back to what he wrote about the, the salvation. That God has brought to pass in Christ. And the giving of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers in the previous verses. And the seal, the earnest, the seal of their souls with the Holy Spirit. So that's what he says, for this reason. For this reason that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, looking back at verse 13. For this reason that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance. For this reason. Because he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his love toward all the saints. First thing to note is faith in God produces love for the saints. A person cannot have love for the saints if they don't have faith in God. If they're not believers to the people who say, oh, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian and that means you don't have faith in God. you not want to be in fellowship with the saints if you call yourself one. Faith in God produces love for the saints. Our faith and love toward all believers are the evidences of saving faith. That's the connection here. our faith and love toward all believers, however, this is the same thing. If you are a believer, you're going to have love towards him. the saints, other believers, fellow believers. It's going to show. And guess what? If you have love for the believers, as we read in First Thessalonians earlier this morning, you're going to desire to be among saints. You don't long to be with the saints. God works that in our hearts by his spirit. If you have a disdain for the saints, if you have an indifferent attitude, then you have to question whether you have true faith in God, because true faith in God won't produce disdain, it will produce love. And this is what Paul is emphasizing here. Love for the saints, which proceeds from faith in God, produces thanksgiving and prayer. Next verse, he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love towards all the saints. Okay, because he heard of that, because he's seen their faith in God in action by loving the saints, because he was encouraged by that, what does he do? He prays. He says, "I do not cease to give thanks to you. Remember you in my what? Prayer. So first he shows thanksgiving. He expresses thanksgiving. Love for the saints again, which proceeds from faith in God, produces thanksgiving or gratitude and prayer for the saints. One of the evidences of our love for the saints is: Do we pray for the saints? Are we thankful for the saints? And the faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because faith in God produces that in our hearts. We pray for the saints. We love the saints. Those of the household of faith. So Paul said he doesn't cease. He prays Without ceasing for them, so Paul was encouraged by their deep faith and their love and care for each other. And as I was reading this morning, of course, in First Thessalonians earlier in the service, it's the same same tender that Paul was given there. He was encouraged by their love for each other, that encouraged him, and they made him want to be with them even more. Although he wasn't able to at that time. He was longing to see them just because he heard of the report that they were truly loving each other. That encourages all of us. Throughout all the ages of church history, 2,000 years of church history, it has been understood that the most significant manifestation of true faith is love. That has always been understood in all of church history. Because the fact is, faith without love is not faith. It's only speculation. It is only knowledge. It is intellectual assent. In other words, you you may say it, you may think it, but it's not actual. Faith without love is not true faith. The fruit of authentic faith in God is always love, and that love is always going to lead to action. And what is that action? Being thankful, being grateful for the people of God and praying for them. When I was reading and studying this passage this week, I I told y'all earlier today, I, I, I dearly love you all as our church family. I love the saints. I talk about the saints all the time. I love the saints. I love the people of God. We are the family of God. We're the only true quote community that exists. We are a true community. The Christian community, the those who are saved, regenerated, true Christians are the only true community that exists. All other so-called communities are false and fake communities. They don't have all things common like us as believers. They don't have the same inheritance that we have. They don't have the same Savior that we have. They don't have the same destination that we have. They don't have one God, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and in all and through all. Only the saints have that. No other false community in this world. They don't have a common savior. That, but they serve our common enemy, and that is Satan. the same. That's what makes them a community, if anything, that they serve the desires of the adversary of believers that is Satan himself. But this love here that Paul shows He's praying for these saints. And I'll say this. I, I wrote this down in my notes. is the thought the Lord gave me. That's in loud with scripture, of course. But even the best of Christians need to be praying for. Don't look at other believers and think that they have it all together. Because they don't. Look, if you understand anthropology, the doctrine of man... That's what anthropology is, the study of man, the doctrine of man. Uh, Biblical anthropology is the, the doctrine of man, that man is inherently sinful. Okay? If you understand true biblical anthropology, you would know that everybody looks like they have it together, don't. That They struggle. They have sins that they struggle with. They have family issues that they struggle with. They have personal issues. They may have illnesses that they have to contend with. They may have an unfaithful spouse or they may have a wayward child. They may have a scary diagnosis. They may have problems on their job. They may be drowning in financial debt. Even who we think are the best. Christians need to be prayed for. And guess what? That includes us. We need prayer. We pray for ourselves and we need to pray for other believers, other saints. We all need prayer. Even our children need prayer. In fact, they need prayer more than anything in the world they're growing up in. I just, man, I thank God I came around when I did. I can imagine growing up, being a child in this generation. I think the Lord probably, I'll probably be messed up just like the rest of them. We need to pray for our children, our grandchildren, our grandbabies, our great-grandchildren. But the point I'm making is even the best of Christians need to pray for Even Paul himself asked for prayer. So when you're talking about prayer for all the saints, you're talking about all of them. Don't, don't skip over the, well, who you think are the super saints. No, guess what? <laughs> They're not so super, and they will tell you themselves. I'm a sinner. You know, sometimes we can idolize people and say, man, they got, they got the nice church. You know, they got the nice-looking family, and their kids are all dressed up. And, you know, we can look at that and say, oh, they, they, don't, they don't need my prayers. <laughs> you start digging down and peeling back layers of that, are you? Even the best of Christian prayer. So Paul here, he says he does not cease giving thanks for them, remembering them in his prayers. Remember the saints in prayer. And so, what is the prayer? This is a good prayer to pray. You run out of something to pray about and pray for. These next verses we're going to look at them this week and next week are a good praying the Bible scriptures. So, we're just going to look at the first couple of petitions here today. Verse 17. So, what's the prayer? That, that's like the beginning of the prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may one, give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So, that's the first petition that Paul gives. Think about this petition. He's not praying that their physical needs be met, which are important. He's not praying that they're able to pay all their bills, which is important. He's not praying for their health, which is important to pray for. He is praying for their spiritual. He is praying that they may even know God more. That the God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ gives us a spirit of wisdom. So, first thing, God is the source of all effective prayer. God is the source of all effective prayer. Say the third time, one for the Father, one for the Son, one for the, Father, the Holy Spirit. God is the source of all effective prayers, and why is this important? It keeps our prayers Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Again, look at what He says: "The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory." He is the source. We pray to God in the name of Jesus. We pray to God through the mediatorship of Christ. Remember, again, we always need those gospel reminders. Christ is our mediator. Christ is our advocate. Christ mediates our relationship between us and God. He is our go-between. He is our advocate. Christ intercedes for us on our behalf before the Father. So we go to God in the name of Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, right in Hebrews 4 said, come boldly before the throne of grace. With our high priest, Christ, he intercedes for us. He's our mediator. God is the source of all effective prayer. Why? That keeps our prayers in line with what God says, with what God commands, and with what God wills. If people say, well, I pray to God all the time. Who is God? That's a great question to ask. You hear a lot of people talk about God. I've been saying this at our church for years. Ask them, who is God? To some people, God is just some A supreme being somewhere up there, a higher power. Using that nonsense language. No, our God has a name. Okay? Paul says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many people say, oh yeah, I pray to God, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord. But guess what? You can't believe in God. You don't believe in his son. Jesus said, you cannot have the son without the father. You can't have one without the other. And this is John 5. You cannot have the son without the father. You can't separate those two. Yeah, you hear people say, I talk to God every day. Sure, the devil does too. The devil talked to him when he uh, wanted to tip Job. Who is God? What God are you talking about? So, when we're praying, our prayers must be sourced through God. Because the keys of our prayers, is Christ-centered and Christ-focused. The keys of our prayers, laser-focused. Man, I'm praying this to be pleasing to God. I'm praying this because I know that it is God's will. You won't know God's will if you don't know God. So he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. He's the Father of glory. He is, the, he is the glorious God. And what it means by that is He is the God to whom all things come from. He is the God who all things in whom all things are contained. He is the glorious God as the sovereign. All glory, all honor belongs to him. Glory, remember, glory is a description of the very character of God in all of his awesome power, in all of his divinity, in all of his majesty, in all of his authority, in all of his sovereignty. That is an expression of God's glory. This is the God that you are praying uh, to the God of all glory, the God who has all authority, the God who is totally divine, the God who is majestic, the God who has all power. This is the God that we're praying to. (coughs) So he says that he may do what? Give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. Amen. I like what this verse is and how it says it. Anyway, what Paul is saying is the only way to know God is through God. Look at at what it says. Look at the structure here. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of who? Him. Himself. God is the one who shows us who God is, in other words. God is the only way we can know God. He gives us the spirit of wisdom to know him. Wisdom from God is Holy Spirit-centered. How do we get wisdom from God? We ask for it. James 1 and 5, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and greater not. He does not withhold it. If you want to know God more, guess what? He will show you him more. In scripture, God will show you if you do what? Ask as you read the scripture. Lord, tell me to know you more as I read I was reading, you know, reading through 1 Samuel for those who are reading with me. Uh, looking at uh, King David's family falling apart. You know, Absalom setting up his own kingdom uh, against him, against his own father. Getting his own army together, setting up his kingdom in Hebron, while David is in Jerusalem. His own son killed his brother because his brother had raped his sister Tamar. I'm like, man, all this is happening. Lord, what? Are you showing us through this passage? These are the consequences of David's sin against Bathsheba. That, yes, God gave, God forgave David. David wrote Psalm 51 on the basis of his uh, confession to Nathan, the prophet, when Nathan came to him, as is written in uh, second, uh, uh, second Samuel. The, i sorry, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter. After Nathan uh, came to him and confronted him, one year later by the way, the whole year, God sent the prophet Nathan to him. And David said, I send for the Lord. And the Lord, guess what? The Lord spared David. When he killed that child that uh, he had born with Bathsheba, the sword did not leave his house. So, he was going to have trouble in his family. Because of that sin that God still set his love for David. David was still a man after God's own heart. Only because God did that. Christ still sat on David's throne because of God's grace to David. It wasn't because of anything David done, because David wasn't worthy of that. So you see, all that learned about God and God and his graciousness towards King David, despite his egregious sin and committing adultery and having the woman's husband killed. And his own son raping his sister. And his other son rebelling against him. But yet God still showed his mercy to King David. As you read scripture, Lord, what can I learn about you? We learn about God through how God has revealed himself. And that is through the word. Not some supernatural uh, fake revelation that you hear in our scripture. We learn about God by what God has revealed himself. And that is in his word. So that's why I said the only way to learn more of God is through God, as he reveals himself. And it is God who gives us what? The spirit of wisdom. And when he's talking about the spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. Isaiah 11 and 2 speaks of Christ and God's wisdom being on him. Christ being the wisdom of God. And so through wisdom, God gives his believers insight into his word and the saving knowledge of him. A person cannot be saved unless God first reveals it to him by the Holy Spirit. A person can't come to Christ until unless God reveals it. To him. Paul says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. He says here, verse 10, I read this a couple weeks ago. For God has revealed them, that means the truths of him, through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God reveals God. A person who says they know God, but they're not a believer, they don't know God. They may know some things about him that perhaps they learned in Sunday school when they were a, a, a child. They may know some facts about God. And have heard of some lies about God. But do they know God? They cannot know him unless they have the spirit of God. Paul says it here in 1 Corinthians 2. And it is the spirit of God that reveals the wisdom of God to us. He says in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 2. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, the natural man means the unregenerate man, the unsaved man. Those who claim to know God, but they don't. He says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them what can he not know the things of the spirit because he said they cannot know them because they are spiritually so what Paul here in Ephesians is talking about the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him the only way we can know God more and have this wisdom is if we have the Spirit of God. And how do we have the Spirit of God? If we are believers. If we're in Christ, we have the Spirit of God. Why? Paul said it back in the previous verses. We are sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit. So because we have the Spirit of God, guess what? God gives us His wisdom. Gives us his wisdom. He shows us who he is because we have his spirit. He gives us the spirit of wisdom. We ought to pray to know Christ better. Knowing Christ better is a lifelong journey. and It is more important than anything else. Knowing Christ better but never plumbed the depths of our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is, the more we know Christ, the more we will be like him. The more we learn of him, the more we learn from him as it is revealed in his Word. guess what? The more we will be like him. Our world is trying to teach people to believe what it's teaching, to learn from them. And what we're from the world is leading to what? Chaos, misery, depression, despair, hopelessness. When you learn from the world, that is what you're going to get. You're going to get misery. You're going to get despondency and despair. You are going to feel hopeless. Because the world is selling you a bill of goods. The world's wisdom, as my grandmom used to say, is like a hill of beans. It's just sitting there, it has no purpose, it's just sitting there as a hill of beans. It's just there. The world's wisdom amounts to a hill of beans. It's, it's nothing, it has no inherent value. You can't trade it for anything. You can't take a hill of beans to the bank and get money for it. How about a down pinto beans yesterday for a dollar from our beacon saved. You know. He <laughs> likes pinto beans besides me and Fred Sarah. We have pinto beans today and collard beans and, you know and and of them, So yeah. anyway, the world's wisdom is, is, is nothing. It's empty. It's vain. It's hopeless. Again, people, why do we have so many hopeless people in this world? Because they're believing the wisdom of the world. And the thing, the way the world works is the world creates the problems and then tries to solve the problems they create, which creates more problems. That's secularism. Man is the solution to man's problems that man creates. And as man tries to uh, create, I mean, not create, as man tries to solve the problems, they create more problems. That's secularism. Secularism is a worldview that that rejects God. That man is in control. That man is the arbiter of all things. That man is the arbiter of truth. Look at where we are. Because of man, rejecting God's wisdom, rejecting God's revelation as he has revealed himself in his word. Look at where our world is. Look at where people are. Because they have rejected the calling of the Spirit to call them to repentance call them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have your hope in him. Get your wisdom from him. Get your knowledge from him. The world has rejected it. And look at what we have. Babies being murdered, slaughtered in their wounds Treated like think that they could be the opposite sex. That people are fighting, it, giving them the top stage believing the lie. Politicians playing your votes, lying to you, telling you sweet nothings. I'm talking about on both sides of the house. All wicked. You know why? They want power. They're not using the wisdom of God. They're using the wisdom of this world. And that's why they legislate this foolishness that we see coming down on the pipe. Because they are believing the wisdom of the world. We have some Christians up in uh, Washington, D.C. But man, that is a soul-sucking place. I have a young man that we become friends on, on Twitter. He's a consultant up there. We had a uh, private message conversation a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me a lot of these uh, guys that come up there as believers, they're like, they're, he said, they're like Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, uh, Peter said that Lot's soul was vexed because of what he saw and what he heard. God saved yeah. Lot of God, snatched Lot out. And Peter said that his soul was vexed because of what he saw in Sodom and Gomorrah and what he heard. You see when you read the uh, account of Genesis that these men came to his door and said that they wanted his doors. He was vexed by the evil. He says like that in Washington, he said, that people go up there and lose their souls for political power. Why? Because that's what the world says is important. That's what the world says matters. That's the world's wisdom. And the world's wisdom you can have all this power, but you're going to be miserable because you believe in the lie. But instead, what are we to do? We're to pray to God for spiritual wisdom. As Paul said, Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. JF Packer, the late theologian, he wrote a book called Knowing God. It's a, it's a great book I, I have it in my uh, collection. And let me just read this right quick. I took some notes from it. Talk about the value of knowing God. First, he says, uh, we have to have the proper attitude that is appalling. And he spoke uh, in Philippians 3, 7-10, where Paul says that he desires to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowshipping of his suffering. Then Packer says, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. He says, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of God. He says, people who know God Excuse me. He used the book of Daniel. He says, People who know God, they have a great energy for God. He says, They have a definite reaction. Listen to this. He says, They have a definite reaction of action to the anti God trends that we see operating around them. And they also have a lot of energy to pray for God's causes. Guess what? If you know God, you're going to hate evil in every form. If you know God, you're going to hate the evil that you see being perpetuated. Not hate the people, but hate the evil that people are perpetuating, that people are pushing on our children and pushing on adults and pushing into our society. You're going to hate that evil. Because what? You know God. You know that is not of God. You know God wouldn't tolerate that. You know that is an abomination to God, that that is an affront to God's created order in the way God made man as we see in Genesis 1. You're going to hate that evil. You're not going to hate the people. You're going to pray for those people, that they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their God and Savior. That God will open their spiritual eyes to his truth so that they can be delivered from the chaotic world that they have helped to create. He says those who know God will hate evil. He says they also have great thoughts of God. He says they have a great boldness for God. He references Acts five and twenty-nine where Peter said, "We ought to obey God rather than man." When we know God, we're going to obey Him rather than man. If man tries to cause us to sin, no, I'm going to obey God. Like Charles Stanley said, "Obey God and leave the consequences to Him." And then he says they have a great contentment in God. They are satisfied in God, no matter what comes or what goes in their life. So this is what Paul has in mind when he's praying for this for us as believers. And then verse 18 he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. The eyes of your heart. What does he mean by that? The eyes of the heart. The heart is the seat, psalm, and center of our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's both uh, actually and metaphorically. You're going to speak what's on your heart. You can't say, oops, I didn't mean to say that. Yes, you did, because it was on your heart. And also, when Jesus said he's talking about your actions, out of the bundles of the heart, that's the way you want to live. And if you look at that passage here in Matthew, the context of it, i turn to it right quick here, Matthew 12. Jesus says here, about the uh he was talking to the Pharisees thirty three and thirty-four. He says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, but also make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its what? Fruit. Everybody know that we can complete that sentence, right? A tree is known by its fruit. He called them a brewer of vipers. How can you being evil speak good things? For, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what? Good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. A person can only do what's in their heart. So when we at the heart, when Paul's talking about this, the eyes of your heart, he's talking about the spiritual heart. that it may be what enlightened to what God's truth. That's the prayer we pray for ourselves. Lord, enlighten my heart to your truth. The spiritually enlightened heart, which is in essence our mind, is the only means of truly understanding what we have in Christ. We will never know what we have in Christ without it being in our heart. An enlightened heart obeys God and is obediently for him. We pray for our hearts to be enlightened. To know God, to reveal God to, die to us. Always pray for your heart. Keep your heart as, as, as it says in Proverbs it means to protect and watch over. For how the heart knows all the issues of life. That's uh, in Proverbs. How the heart knows all the issues of life. And also, about the heart, you can't trust your heart. Jeremiah 17 9, something like that. The heart is deceitfully, I'm so the heart is deceitful, above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Can't follow your own heart because your heart is wicked. Your unregenerate heart is wicked. Your your unregenerate heart is deceitful. It deceives you. Don't follow your heart. Follow Jesus, Amen. (laughs) Follow Jesus. And then he says that your heart may be enlightened, and also that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of the glorious in this is where we're going to land today. So, these vessels are Christ-centered, they're christ source, and they are fulfilled in Christ. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, when we see the word hope in Scripture, it's not like some wishful thinking type hope in the sweet by and by. No, this hope is not vain. It is an assurance of total victory. That's what scripture means when it talks about hope. Christians, we have a hope. Guess what? We have a victory. We have an assured victory that has already been accomplished in Christ. Christ is the hope of the believer. He has already accomplished the victory for us. We already have assurance of total victory in Christ. So this is what Paul is calling us to. This is what he's praying for, that we may know this hope. That we have to comprehend the blessings that are us, our future hope. What is our future hope? That Christ is coming back. He's coming back. And so what is he come back to do? To bring his people home, to be with him. again, we have to remind ourselves our hope is not in this world. This world is going to perish. It's going to fall away. This world is going to burn up. Our hope is in Christ. What's the the, uh, Him in Christ alone? My hope is found. My life, my strength, my song. Christ is only like I stand. All other ground is sinking. Sand. All other ground is sinking. Sand. He is our hope. And Paul is praying that we focus on that, that We know what the hope is to which he has called us. He didn't call us to hope in this world. He called us to hope in Christ. And then he says, What are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints? And this inheritance is not our inheritance. but He says, It is God's inheritance in us. And what is his inheritance in us? Eternal life. It indicates how precious we are to God. And I wrote this down in my notes as an addition. God doesn't love us because we matter. We matter because God loves us. God sent his love on us. He told Israel to do the seven. He said his love on them. He chose them because he said his love on them. It wasn't because of anything Israel did. First John 4, 19, we loved him because he first loved us. We can't love God in and of ourselves. We can't love God unless he does what? Set his love on us by saving us. And as he saves us, guess what? We now love him. Those who are not saved, they don't love God. They may say they do, they don't. They can't love God because they're not one of his children. But God doesn't love us because we matter. We matter because God loves us. We as saints are valuable to God. We are valuable to God. And this is where our sense of worth comes from. The fact that we're valuable to God as saints. It doesn't come from self-worth. Because if we say self-worth, you're pointing to who? Self. Our worth comes from God. Not by the changing standards of the world. Our worth comes from the truth that God has set his love on us. Christian, you are worth something because of God. No matter what the world says, people are looking for their worth in the world. Don't you know the world standards change? Do you know at one time, not too long ago, having Christian biblical values was good in our society. Not too long ago, a generation or two ago, having Christian values, Christianity's influence in our country was great. It was at all time high. But the tide has turned, it's no longer favorable. A believer in the Lord, a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the world loves? The world loves false Christians and apostate denominations. Yeah, that's true Christianity. They got the flag in front of their church, the one with all the different colors. They got the BLM sign hanging from the front doors. That's the kind of apostate church that the world loves. The world doesn't love true biblical Christians. Hate us, but I'm okay with it. I'm not trying to be hateful, but the fact that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I stand on His truth, I want to be hated, but I don't care. I'd rather please God than man and not bow the knee for one second to these people. Pray for their souls, pray for their salvation, but that you stand firm in. Christ. You stand firm in the hope, as Paul says, that he called you to. Why? Because you have a glorious inheritance. You are valuable to God. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about you, Christian. Don't have fear of man and fear the opinions of people. What did Jesus tell disciples in Matthew 10? Don't fear them who's able to destroy the body but not the soul. Fear him who's able to destroy or cast both the soul and body into hell? We're not to fear man. Man can do nothing to us. Man can't do anything to our souls. They have no control over that. Only God does. That's why we pray for each other. That we know what the riches of his glory is. As you go through this week, Think about the fact that you're in Christ, that you belong to God, that you are valuable to him, that your sense of worth comes from him. Don't leave your first love. As God said to the church in Revelation 2, he said, I have one thing against you, you have left your first love. Because the eyes of that church's heart had grown dull over the years. Instead of loving their God more and more each year, they lost that early lush that they had for God. They lost that focus on the eyes of their heart. If we're if, if anyone here is in that position today where we've lost that twinkle encourage you to pray about that. There's no greater priority in life than coming to know God better. No greater priority than knowing God better. So what are we about to do? Two things. Pray for the Holy Spirit to enable you to know God better and more fully each day. Do that through prayer. Look, we got to fight to pray. All of us are busy, right? From the time we wake up, we're off to the races. zone. I know I am. And I'm being honest, I gotta I gotta fight. I gotta steal time to fight. With but we have we, we fight for that to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to know God more each day. Invest some time to getting to know God better in His Word. That's why we do these reading challenges, we're doing that as an encouragement to us to, to know God better, see the narrative of Scripture narrative of what God is doing in Israel and, and, and David and, and wait until you get to first and second Kings. It's going to be worse with these kings, but we're still seeing God's grace be with his people no matter their rebellion. we have learned about God and how he is with us. that God is with us despite our rebellion. Despite our sinning against him, despite our disobeying him, God still set his love upon us. He still sees us as justified ones because we are in his son. And you see that play out in the life of David. Read God's word to get to know him better. Pray, ask God to open the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. Amen. Amen. Let us close in prayer. Father, my my prayer is that we're not like the church in Ephesus, the church in Revelation, that they have left their first love, that their eyes have grown dull over the years, that they lost that early lush that they had for you and towards you. That they lost the focus of their heart and the eyes of their heart. Lord, there's no greater priority in life than knowing you better. And Lord, honestly, all of us fall short of that, even myself. We, the business of life and the business of this world we're allowed to get to us. And we fail to steal time away. To study you and learn more about you. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for that. Give us grace. Lord, also give us grace to commit to knowing you more. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of you. To open the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in us as saints. And Lord I also pray that you may save sinners. Save those who are unregenerate so that they can be part of your kingdom also and be you can be the inheritance. In Christ's name I pray